I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my 69th Sermon on the Biblical Design of Gender, in which my point is that God's commandments provide us with principles to override our desires. We have an obligation to not fulfill our own wants or needs if to do so violates the principles that God has given us. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on this third day of the month of April. The uh, first quarter of 2011 is uh, in the books. Excuse me. And uh, we're starting on the second quarter. Uh, Spring is about to, uh, hopefully, is about to come upon us and We're hoping that uh, the weather is pleasant where you are and will become more pleasant just very shortly. And uh, on this third day of April in the year of 2011, our lesson this morning is the 69th part in our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. The text is in the 26th and the 27th verses of the sixth chapter of the book of 2 Kings, which read as follows. Then... As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help, O my Lord, the king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, we ask you that you would give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity and with boldness and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last lesson, we discussed the case of Naaman, the leader of the Syrian army, who was afflicted with that which I assume was a mild case of leprosy. As the spoils of Naaman's military victory over Israel Naaman enslaved a young Israelite girl to make her his wife's maid. And Naaman's wife treated the girl well. And once the girl developed an allegiance to Naaman and his wife, 
she recommended that Naaman go to see Elisha, the Israelite prophet of God, in order to be healed of his leprosy. So Naaman went. Second Kings chapter 5, verse 9 and 10 records, Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. Now, although this sounds like a straightforward instruction, Naaman found it completely unsatisfactory. Naaman's business was enslaving Israelites, and as a master, he expected a certain degree of deference from the Israelites. But Elisha did not show Naaman deference or respect. Elisha just sent a messenger to tell Naaman to wash himself, to wash himself. Now, Naaman didn't come to Israel just to take a bath, but rather expected a more personal response from the prophet of God. Naaman reacted in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, which says, But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosies. Are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. Now Naaman felt rage and fury because he considered Elisha's instruction ludicrous and Naaman's pride was hurt because Elisha didn't even have the courtesy to deliver the instruction personally. Naaman was anticipating a demonstration of the power of God not to be told to go take a bath. But people often get off track by thinking that God's movement requires a flamboyant supernatural demonstration of power. John chapter 9, verse 1 through 7 lets us know that this is not true. The Bible records, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for the night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And Jesus said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now history indicates that the pool of Siloam was dug by King Hezekiah, and the pool had been in use for about 700 years or so. Siloam was a common washing place, so those that heard Jesus telling the blind man to wash did not see anything extraordinary in the command. Nevertheless, this very common act led the blind man to an uncommon result in that 
he received his sight. And this was an extraordinary healing. The blind man testified to the Pharisees in John chapter 9, verse 31 through 33. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. And God often works in the most humble and unanticipated of ways in order to fulfill one of his principles. Psalm 138 verse 6 tells us, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. And you see, pride is a deterrent to interacting with God as the wisest man that ever lived recognized. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 3.34, Surely God scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. And if we want grace, which is defined as God's unmerited favor, by which God acts spontaneously and favorably toward us through no merit of our own, we need to maintain our humility, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Thus, it is incumbent upon us as good Christians to recognize that we are not worthy of the blessings of God, and God blesses us as we exhibit a submissive spirit which activates his generous nature. And Jesus himself instructs us in Luke 14, 8 through 11, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we are not to exalt ourselves, but to take the lowest seat. But the self-exaltation or pride of Naaman was compromising his opportunity to be blessed. The blind man humbly washed in the pool of Siloam at Jesus' instruction and came away seeing. The leper Naaman was too proud to wash in the Jordan River and receive his healing. But Naaman's servants appealed to Naaman's opinion of his own great ability to convince Naaman to follow instructions. 2 Kings 5, 13 and 14 records, 
And Naaman's servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? But how much more than when he says to you, Wash and be clean. So Naaman went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And receiving cleansing in the Jordan River taught Naaman the lesson of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And Naaman, after his healing, went humbly back to the prophet Elisha, as 2 Kings 5.15 records, and Naaman returned to Elisha, the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and Naaman said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Now, Jesus Christ performed a great miracle out on Calvary's cross as he suffered, bled, and died on the cross that our sins might be forgiven and then rose from the dead early on that first Easter Sunday morning and appeared to the disciples that we might have a record of that which he did for the salvation of our souls. But many people in our time are like Naaman before his healing, too proud to follow God's simple instructions to believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is the most historically verifiable event in history prior to the invention of the printing press. Now, I received a blessing much like that of Naaman one day when a young man came to my door to recruit me to increase my participation in the affairs of the church of which we were both members. When he began to tell me about my responsibility to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, I arrogantly told him that I could not do so in good conscience because it was my opinion that that which the church taught about Jesus Christ was a fairy tale. I considered church membership to be a good thing and the principles of the Ten Commandments as a good moral guide for life, but I also considered the story of Jesus Christ to be on par with the stories of Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and the Easter Bunny. Fortunately for me, this young man approached me much as Naaman's servants approached him. He told me to investigate the bona fides of Jesus Christ, just as Naaman's servants convinced him to investigate the bona fides of washing in the Jordan River. And just as Naaman was convinced by his experience at the Jordan, I was convinced by my investigation of Jesus Christ because the testimony of both religious and secular history is that Jesus Christ was an actual person, that Jesus Christ was physically crucified and sealed in a tomb that Friday, and that Jesus Christ's body escaped from the tomb in which he was buried and that was guarded by a quaternion of Roman soldiers without assistance from any human agency. And the testimony of the apostles is that Jesus Christ appeared to them and spoke to them after his resurrections 
and the apostles stuck to this testimony at the expense of their very lives. With the single exception of John, all of the apostles died violent deaths, being executed in various cruel and unusual ways because they would not recant of the testimony that they spoke to Jesus Christ after his resurrection from the dead and that Jesus Christ made it clear to them that he was and is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the apostles were not the only ones that gave their lives for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Between the time of Jesus' resurrection and the establishment of Christianity as the state religion of Rome some 400 years later, an estimated 1.5 million Christians died as martyrs rather than recant of their testimony of Jesus Christ. That a million and a half people would voluntarily submit to execution rather than recant of their personal experience with Jesus Christ is an incredible fact that verifies beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Christians of the first four centuries were convinced of the truth of the resurrection. And their humble, steadfast, consistent testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ over the centuries at the expense of their very lives finally topple the belief structure of the most powerful pagan nation in the world and changed it into the Roman Catholic Church of Jesus Christ, which continues to exist to this day. Recognizing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical fact and that he died to pay the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed should introduce an element of humility into our lives. Jesus' sacrifice of himself made it clear to those that lived in the first four centuries after his death that loving our earthly lives is not conducive to eternal longevity. Revelation 12, 10, 11 tells us, Now I heard a loud voice in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame the accuser by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Now the accuser, the devil, who accused and prosecuted mankind before God because of man's sin, was cast down from heaven as a function of the forgiveness of sin by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The devil could no longer act as a prosecuting attorney against mankind, pointing out the fact that the sinfulness of man makes men unworthy of God's kingdom because Jesus Christ paid the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed. And since the penalty for our sins has been paid, we no longer owe the debt of being condemned for our sin as the accuser, the devil, will be. Interestingly, the only chance that the devil and his angels have to avoid being in hell by themselves is to convince us, even as he almost convinced Naaman, 
to be too proud to follow God's instructions for salvation, which are given in John three sixteen and 17, which tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the equation is simple. Whoever humbles himself to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is saved. Whoever does not humble himself, but chooses to trust in his own goodness rather than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is lost. As Revelations 12 and 10 tells us, the devil has been cast down to earth to sow unbelief. But the devil can be overcome by our testimony to the death of our belief in Jesus Christ. Those 1.5 million martyrs of which I spoke earlier lived in a pagan country, one in which Christian beliefs were punished by execution. But you and I are blessed to live in this country, a country in which Christianity is the dominant religion. And it is a blessing for us that we live in a place in which God can be exalted and Jesus Christ worship without interference from the political authorities of the day. However, we must be vigilant because the devil is still here on planet Earth. And just as those that initially preached Christianity took four centuries to turn pagan Rome into a Christian nation, the devil recognizes that his plan to change the religion of our nation into paganism may not be an overnight occurrence. And as the devil's influence causes a nation to become increasingly pagan, God's mercy to that nation decreases. Our text for today occurred when Israel turned away from God. Second Kings 6, 24 and 25 records, and it happened after this, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered up all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed the Syrians besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a calf of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. And although Naaman's experience made him a believer in God, God still used the Syrian army to discipline Israel. The Syrians besieged Samaria, meaning that they surrounded it and kept food and supplies from entering the city so that the few supplies that were left were being sold for exorbitant prices. People did not have the money to buy food if there was food available and starvation was setting in. Our text, 2 Kings 6, 26 and 27 records, then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, the king. And the king said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king of Israel correctly recognized that as long as the Lord empowered the Syrians to besiege Israel, there was no help for the Israelites. Psalm 127 verse 1 tells us, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. 
unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But the woman's specific problem was the result of a deal gone bad. As 2 Kings 6, 28 and 29 records, then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she said, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. And as you can see from the Bible, killing children did not start in 1973 with Roe versus Wade. And although we may have thought that Naaman was self-centered, can you imagine the amount of self-centeredness that would allow someone to not only eat their own child, but to publicly appeal to an authority figure to help them kill and eat someone else's child? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But this woman was not just able to rationalize disobeying the biblical admonition against murder. She was self-centered enough to rationalize that the chief law enforcement officer of the day should help her murder another woman's child and eat him. Now, the social dysfunction in this passage of scripture points out some of the problems of our day. First of all, among these women with children, there are no fathers mentioned. Women with children without a man to protect and, and provide appear to be more likely to rationalize violence toward their children. First Kings chapter three, verse 16 through 18 tells us an analogous story. Now, two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. And then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. Once again, no man is mentioned in the episode which continues in 1 Kings 3, 19 through 22. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And similarly to the woman that boiled her son to eat him, one of the women is callous about the life of the child. 1 Kings 3, 24 through 26 records, Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one, 
and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. Once again, the impulse of the woman is to kill the child. But God gives us a commandment forbidding murder. Now let us contemplate commandments for a moment. God gives us commandments to restrain our natural impulses and desires. God only tells us to not do things that we have a propensity to do. For instance, there is no commandment against flapping your wings and flying because you don't have wings. God only tells us not to do things that we can and will and want to do. So since God tells us to not murder, we conclude that we have a natural propensity towards murder and God in his word is telling us to control ourselves. Now, by saying that we have a natural propensity to murder, I don't mean that we are so depraved that we would just kill people at random for no reason. That would make us monsters. But I do mean that we have the intellectual propensity to come to the decision that murder is the best course of action given certain stimuli. And although people generally should not murder, we personally should be allowed to murder given a certain set of circumstances. That is the reason that abortion is so popular in our society and women exercise political power in order to maintain the right to murder their own unborn children in their wombs if their children are conceived in an inconvenient situation. And that is analogous to the problem here. The circumstance of the woman who boiled her son is that she and her companion are starving to death because of the siege of the Syrians. Food, even if available, is hideously expensive. And the woman has rationalized that if she cannot find enough sustenance to keep herself alive, her son is going to starve as well, since an infant has less of a chance to find food than she as an adult does. This rationalization leads her to the conclusion that since her son is going to starve to death anyway, his carcass might as well keep her alive for a few more days. So she boils her son and shares him with her companion in the expectation that her companion will do the same thing the next day. And that is the thinking of a murderer. A murderer can rationalize that which he or she does. A young girl is so looking forward to the prom. She has seduced an attractive boy into agreeing to be her date. She has the dress picked out, the shoes dyed, and everything is ready. But she begins gaining weight and finds it increasingly difficult to get into her clothes. Her seduction of her boyfriend has made her pregnant. And being pregnant will cause her to miss the big day for which she has been planning the whole school year. She won't be able to wear the beautiful dress or run for prom queen. And in her adolescent mind, 
These things are of utmost importance. No one can understand the depth of emotion that she feels about her day. But the baby continues to grow inside of her. She realizes that her big day is not going to happen if she remains pregnant. So she has to make a decision. Shall I have my day or shall I have the baby? Unfortunately for her, and even more unfortunately for her child, there is a counselor at her school that tells her that that which is growing inside of her is not a baby until it is outside of the womb. Legally, as long as it is in her body, it is not a child, but a mass of cells. And she can legally have that mass of cells removed. So, with the change of one word, her decision becomes simple. Should I have the mass of cells removed and become prom queen, of which I have dreamed all year? Or should I not remain pregnant, end up with a baby, and in my mind have my life ruined? It is a simple decision. And hundreds of times per day in our country, young girls make the decision to run for prom queen and become murderers. And the reason that this situation exists, as the scripture tells us, is not just that the girl has a propensity to murder, but the authority figures have that propensity as well. Second Kings chapter 6 Verse 30 and 31 records, Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Then he said, God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elijah the son of Shaphat remains on him today. Elisha? What does Elisha have to do with the fact? that the woman can't find sufficient food in the city and has killed her son. Well, Elisha is the man of God. Elisha is the one that prophesied doom on the city that has forsaken God and worshiped idols. Elisha is the bearer of bad tidings. It is always easier to kill the bearer of bad tidings than to deal with the reason for the bad tidings. Elisha is not the murderer. Elisha is the one telling the Israelites to follow the commandments of God. Since the Israelites don't want to follow the commandments of God, they also don't want to recognize that the consequences that they are experiencing are because of their disobedience. And to avoid this recognition, the girl running for prom queen rationalizes that the problem is the mass of cells, not her disobedience. And to avoid this recognition, the king of Israel rationalizes that the problem is the prophet, not the disobedience of Israel. So the king rationalizes that the murder of the child that was eaten is not the fault of the woman that murdered and ate him, but rather the fault of the prophet that prophesied the conditions that impelled the woman to murder. And the king does not want to punish the woman because the king wants murder to be legal. The king himself might get a woman pregnant inconveniently, and he wants the same 
get out of trouble free card that the prom queen is using. But all rationalization aside, the purpose of a commandment is to provide us with a principle that will override our desires. As believers in God, we have an obligation to not act according to our own wants or even our own needs if to do so violates the principles that God has given us. That is that which being a believer in Jesus Christ who disregarded his own needs and voluntarily died on the cross of Calvary actually means. But even if the woman knew for a fact that her child would starve to death shortly after she did, the woman ought not have boiled her child and eaten him simply because God tells us not to murder. The prom queen ought not obtain an abortion simply because God tells us not to murder. And the king ought not kill the prophet simply because God tells us not to murder. Our takeaway point tells us that we are in the process of developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Our eternal life. There is another life in which the actions that we perform in this life are going to be judged. So we ought not commit murder regardless of the consequence that we have in this life because there is another life. If we starve to death in this life, that is not the end of our life. And it would be better for us to give all we have to our children, even if we have to starve to death and our children starve to death after us, then as the woman did to kill our children, eat them and live a few more days. Because we are still going to die, as Hebrews 9.27 tells us, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And in our last lesson, I quoted Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, and their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Life on this side is a finite quantity. We are only going to live a certain number of years and then we are going to die. There is no escape from this fact. But Jesus tells us in John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And since Jesus tells us of everlasting life, it is time for us to change our perspective. We are alive because God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, 
developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. We are called to prepare for our eternal life by focusing on the eternal commandments of God, which are the principles of eternal life, as our responsibility in our eternal life will be directly proportional to our proven ability in this life to follow the commandments of God. Jesus tells us in Luke 12, 47 and 48, and that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is much, and it has been committed to us. It is our job to understand God's principles and to live by them. So let us continue to live together, to grow together, and to learn God's prime directive for our lives given to us in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, and we ask you, Lord, that you would put our minds on the straight and narrow. Help us, Lord, to not just learn the words in your commandments, but to understand the principles that you are telling us, and then to make the difficult decisions in our lives that will allow us to abide by the principles that you are teaching us, that we might use this life as a preparation ground to put our lives in line with your word, do that which you command us to do, and prepare ourselves well for further responsibility in our eternal life. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.